So Dr. Henry Cloud is a psychologist and a leadership coach, and he's written yet another excellent book I'd recommend to you called Nine Things a Leader Must Do. Nine Things a Leader Must Do. And he has a chapter in that book titled, Put Superman Out of a Job. That's one of the nine things. Cloud paints the familiar comic strip scenario where, you know, someone in Metropolis is in trouble, there's a disaster, there's a crisis, there's a catastrophe going on, and then at the last moment when all is lost, bursting out of the nearest phone booth, remember such things as phone booths? Bursting out of the nearest phone booth in his blue leotard and red cape comes Superman, faster than a speeding bullet. And you can substitute your favorite good guy or good gal if you want, whatever. But the result is always the same. When the superhero arrives, the threat is disarmed, the crisis averted, and lives are saved. And then Henry Cloud writes this. Here's what I'm wondering when I see those clips. Why doesn't somebody else step up and do something to save the day? It's like everybody else is powerless even to try to intervene. The, 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 the people seem resigned to the fact that if Superman doesn't show up, they're all doomed. So nobody even tries. Nobody even lifts a finger. But effective leaders don't do that. Effective leaders do not let problems cause paralysis. Effective leaders take initiative on the problem. Effective leaders attack the problem. Effective leaders find solutions for the problem. Effective leadership is not problem-focused, it's solution-centered. And so effective leaders are continually asking themselves, what can I do to make this situation better? What can I do to make this situation better? Well, that question is what's driving Paul's first letter to Timothy. Around A.D. 64, the Apostle Paul wrote to a 30-something young man, Timothy. Timotheos, one who honors God. Paul recruited Timothy for his missionary team. And they took the gospel of Jesus across the Roman Empire including the most prosperous city of the empire's most prosperous province, Ephesus. You can still see Ephesus today. It's an amazing outdoor museum. You can walk on the streets that the Apostle Paul walked. First century Ephesus. It's fascinating. And Christianity flourished in Ephesus. Uh, there was a large Christian community, and they worshiped in house churches. So, you know, they didn't have 10 acres outside of town and a room like this. They met in homes. And so this network of house churches constituted the church at Ephesus, the Christian community there. But in those house churches where worship took place, a different gospel started circulating, a different doctrine, a false gospel 
a false doctrine. Men like Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom we see in 1 Timothy 1.20. We're, we're, we're taking religious rabbit trails and, 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 and meaningless myths and, and Jewish genealogies and focusing on minutia, all taking the focus off of Christ. Christ crucified, Christ risen. And their Christ-centered worship became distracted and disorganized gatherings. So Paul sent Timothy to make the situation better. And Timothy's disposition, Timothy's personality, his temperament, his presence, well, let's just say he wasn't Superman. Uh, he wasn't exactly a, a robust person in, in temperament or even his physical health. But he's the best Paul has. And so Paul's word to Timothy is simple. Put Superman out of a job. Timothy, Superman's not going to show up. There's not another plan or another committee or troubleshooting team that's your backup. They're not, they're not gathering to conduct strategic whiteboard discussions about how to fix this. Timothy, you the man. Step up. You have gospel truth. You have the Holy Spirit living in your life. You have other faithful brothers and sisters in Christ there with you in Ephesus. And you have this. This letter. What we call 1 Timothy. So... What do you need to do to make this situation better? It's really a good leadership question. It really is. And I've been challenged by this question. Uh, and I'll tell you this. I am not proud of it, but in my time here, um, you know, I've um, sometimes found myself when our staff brings me problems or issues, I've, sometimes I've found myself just simply put out. Well, why, why did you fix this? What do you bring this to me for? You know, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to brainstorm this. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this. You know? And I've been challenged by Colin Powell, who... Um, gave me two quotes that are that stick with me. The first is this. He says, the day soldiers stop bringing you their problems is the day you have stopped leading them. They've either lost confidence that you can help or they've concluded that you do not care. Either case is a failure of leadership. Ouch. Then there's another quote. Both of these pertain to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul, uh, Colin Powell wrote, Great leaders are almost always great simplifiers who can cut through the argument, debate, and doubt and offer a solution everyone can understand. Okay? So, Timothy, here's an opportunity. This problem is your opportunity to exercise God-given leadership. And... Here's what will make the situation better. The solution's simple. Here it is. Pray 
and learn. Pray and learn. That's the solution to the problem which Paul explains in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul tells Timothy that when God's people gather, when the house churches meet, their worship gatherings need to consist of prayer and learning. Pray and learn. Pray, that's the trajectory of verses 1 through 7. Learn, that's the trajectory of verses 8 through 15. Let's take them uh, beginning with pray, verses 1 through 7. Now, Paul says, first of all, I urge then that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And the word all dominates verses 1 through 7. Paul says, for all people. Paul says, for kings and all in high positions. And why? Because God wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man who offered his life as a ransom for all. Do you see how all dominates verses 1 through 7? Jesus is the ransom. Ransom, that means exchange price. In Christ, he receives my sin and I receive his holiness. So there's a double exchange going on. He gets my F and I get his A+. It's a great deal. It's grace, it's mercy, and a selfless community of Christ-centered love focuses upon grace and mercy found in Christ. And a selfless community of Christ-centered love prays to that end, prays for all races, all ethnicities, all social statuses, and all backgrounds. A selfless community of Christ-centered love pleads to God that all might know God. A selfless community of Christ-centered love thanks God for those in government because those in government in Paul's day kept the peace so that the gospel could go out throughout the entire empire. So Paul says, pray for kings and all in high positions. Pray for the Caesars, Paul says. And Paul lived in an empire that did not have a long history at all of Judeo-Christian thought. He lived under the rule of idol-worshiping Caesars, some of whom were ruthlessly hostile to Christianity. Godless kings like Nero, who made torches out of the bodies of Christians in Rome. Paul says, pray for him. Pray for them all. And why? Why? You notice why? Verse 2. The goal of this, Paul says, is that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul says, I want you to pray, not merely so that they will lead well, but so that we will follow well. Don't you see the goal is that those who spend time with us in worship and then outside our gathering, they would come to the unmistakable conclusion, you know, that that we, Windsor Road Christian Church, are with, these people are remarkable people. They're remarkable people. They're peaceful people. They're dignified people. They're godly people. And when these people, God's people, His church, this church, us, when they walk into this room with us, when these people enter the room, peace and dignity follow with them. Psalm 23 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What follows you when you walk into a room? What remains after you leave the room? Is it peace? 
Is it dignity or is it chaos? It's a leadership question. That's what's at stake in Ephesus and it's what's at stake here. Does the level of anxiety rise or fall when you enter a room? You walk into the office tomorrow morning and you see your colleague or your boss or your employee. And they look up at you. Note the expression on their face. Okay? Do, do their eye, does their face rise? You'll know. You'll know. And I don't think I need to convince any of us how vital our prayers are for those who rule over us nationally, regionally, locally. Prayers for those in Washington, Springfield, Champaign County. Prayers for the executive, the legislative, the judicial branches of government. Prayers for presidents, senators, governors, representatives, judges. Prayers for the state police and the local police. As Professor Jarvis Williams uh, wrote, uh, he's a professor of theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville, there's no contradiction between holding unjust police, unjust leaders, and unjust civilians accountable while also thanking God for the good police, the good leaders, and the good citizens in our communities. Pray for our leaders. And why, along with Paul, we say so that, so that peaceful, riot-free lives of dignity are on display in the lives of Believers everywhere. We pray so that when people leave our gathering and, and God doesn't dismiss us, He sends us. And that in our sending, those who are with us are left with the unmistakable impression God has been here. God is in this place. And then they ask us, why are you this way? And we say, because Jesus is our ransom for all. Jesus is our mediator. That's why. So don't you see, the whole thrust of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7, is about outreach and evangelism because of how God's people have conducted themselves in their gathering. And so, brothers and sisters, we we want to pray for the police and we want to pray for our judges and we want to pray for those in government. We want to pray that God gives them wisdom to serve and to lead and to judge justly. And we want to pray this so that we will follow well. Amen? So let's do that together. I have a brief prayer liturgy uh, on uh, the screen here behind me, and I would like for us to participate in some congregational prayer. And I will begin, and you, the congregation, will respond. O oh Lord, our great King, bless the leaders of our land, that we may be a people at peace among ourselves and a blessing to other nations of the earth. Lord, keep this nation under your care. To the president and members of the cabinet, to governors of states, mayors of cities, and to all in administrative authority, grant wisdom and grace in the exercise of their duties. Give grace to your servants, O Lord. To senators and representatives and those who make our laws in states, cities, and towns, give courage, wisdom, and foresight to provide for the needs of all our people and to fulfill our obligations in the community of nations. Give grace to your servants, O Lord, to the judges and officers of our courts, 
give understanding and integrity that human rights may be safeguarded and justice served. Give grace to your servants, O Lord. And finally, teach our people to rely on your strength and to accept their responsibilities to their fellow citizens that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and dignity that we may serve you faithfully in our generation and honor your holy name. Give grace to your servants, O Lord, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. So pray, Paul says. That's what will make the situation better. Pray, verses 1 through 7. And then learn, learn, verses 8 through 15. Learn. So there's a book uh, that one of you recommended to me about learning called Mindset. Mindset. And in this book, the author asserts that, you know, the world is not divided into winners or losers or the strong or the weak. Rather, the world is divided into learners and non-learners. And non-learners possess what the author calls a fixed mindset. Non-learners see success as proving to those around, uh, you know, who you are and how talented you are. Non-learners are about appearing to be smart. Non-learners are about self-validation. Self-validation, non-learners. On the other hand, learners, oh, they're about discovery. They're about stretching their minds. They're about being amazed by finding something new. They're at peace knowing that they don't know everything. And thus... Their concern is not self-validation, but self-development. And the author challenges the reader with this question. Are you about validation or are you about development? What are you about? Well, that takes us to verses 8 through 15. Because learning is the theme of this section. Now, church family, when we're understanding Scripture... The first question we really need to ask is not, what does this mean to me? The question we need to ask is, what do these verses mean to those who first received them? So who are the first recipients? And let's decipher and discern as disciplined and as rigorously as we possibly can to figure out what it meant to them first and then Listen to the lessons for us. That's proper understanding of God's Word. So that takes us to the question here, who are these men in verse 8? I desire then that in every place the men should pray. Who are these men? There's anger, there's quarreling in their hearts. Paul says, you know, you can't learn from someone that you're mad at, and you can't be mad at someone if you're praying for them. So pray. Pray. And who are these women? Who are these women in these verses? These women who don braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire? Who are these women? Well, they're not poor, are they? 
They're affluent. So that takes us to a little background about these verses. Rome's version of a traditional marriage was a husband-wife relationship where the wife was expected in Roman culture. I'm not talking about in the Christian church. I'm talking about in Roman culture. Rome's version of a traditional marriage was where the wife was expected to remain faithful and chaste to her husband, but that it was culturally appropriate for the husband to have affairs and sexual dalliances outside the marriage. In Roman culture, a wife was for children and a mistress was for sexual pleasure. That That was Rome's version of leave it to beaver. Until about the year 44 B.C. When ancient historians speak of a sexual revolution uh, that appeared in the empire. One that that would make those of us who lived through the 60s blush. Uh, There appeared what ancient historians call the new woman of the Roman Empire. The new woman of the Roman Empire. And her motto was, it's my turn. And she dressed sensuously, and she was educated, and she wore braided hair and expensive jewelry made of gold, and she was assertive, and she pursued wealthy, young, single, or married men. And these women, the new Roman women, would appear in banquets and social gatherings and homes. And with an eye on either the single or the married men, they would partake in what history calls after dinners. After dinners. And by that, I do not mean they went to the custard cup. (laughs) They were promiscuous, assertive, wealthy, stylish, and and influential. They made Lady Gaga look like Mary Poppins. And according to scholars like Scott McKnight, Bruce Winter, Philip Towner, uh, Ben Witherington, the new Roman woman was immodest, sexually provocative, extravagantly dressed, uh, known to, to grab the mic in public, you know, and snatch the podium. And uh, there was some association, at least in Ephesus, with uh, the goddess Artemis, the Greek goddess Artemis, the, the, uh, who was the goddess of the religious fertility cult there. Well, these women began to show up in the house churches in first century Ephesus during the worship gatherings, asserting themselves, asking questions, chit-chatting during the sermon. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's response was a response to these recipients in that city at that time to troubleshoot that situation. Now, church family, I mean, forests of trees have given their lives for the pages of commentary on verses 8 through 15, all right? And so... I'm going to go through this in the next four minutes. 
So I'll just start by saying I could be wrong on what I'm about to share with you in terms of my learning. Um, but I believe I've done my homework here. So with humility, let's go through these verses. And following a specific New Testament scholar um, uh, from the Church of England, John Stott, it's helpful to understand these verses if we understand that the Apostle Paul is giving a timeless principle and then also a specific cultural application. Timeless principle, specific cultural application. So in verse 8, always and everywhere, men are to pray in holiness and love without anger or quarreling. That's the timeless principle, always and everywhere. That's transcultural. Okay. Though the specific cultural expressions of their prayers may differ, be they hands raised or hands clasped, or standing or kneeling, okay? Timeless principle, cultural specific application. In verses 9 and 10, always and everywhere, women are to adorn themselves with modesty, decency, propriety, and good works. That's the timeless principle. Though the cultural expression regarding clothing and hairstyles and jewelry may differ according to the time and the era. Timeless principle, specific cultural application. Verses 11 through 14. Always and everywhere, let there be an ordered relationship between husband and wife, where the husband in Christ is first to sacrifice, first to protect, first to cherish, first in chastity in the marriage. First to serve, first to pastor, first to shepherd. The husband in Christ, whether extroverted or introverted, thinker or feeler, planner or worker be, the Christian husband is to set the spiritual tone of the family. And the Christian wife then is to live toward her husband as the church lives toward Christ with a voluntarily yielded heart. So the initiating heart of a servant leader is complemented by the voluntarily yielded heart of fierce beauty. And then we get to this very, very peculiar verse, verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The, the, the point of of verse 14 is not that, you know, Eve was deceived and Adam wasn't, and thus women are just constitutionally gullible. No! The point was that Eve was deceived before Adam was deceived because the serpent sabotaged God's created order and Adam let it happen because when the serpent was deceiving Eve in Genesis 3. The chapter specifically says, and Adam was with her. And he said nothing. 
So Paul wants to preserve the timeless principle of loving sacrificial headship and and at the same time let there be cultural sensitivity regarding the act of teaching. Paul can't be calling for a total silence of our Christian sisters here because in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, both brothers and sisters in Christ prayed and prophesied in the worship service. But before you teach, you need to master the material. Because learning precedes teaching. And that's how the situation gets better. And then there's verse 15. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Huh? I've read the cream of the scholarly crop on this extraordinarily difficult verse, and I can confidently say to you, I still don't know for sure what it means. No kidding. Um, literally, the verse reads, they, who's they referred to? Just women, men and women? What, what's Paul talking about here? And there are some options. You know, is Paul speaking to the new woman of Rome who saw pregnancy and motherhood as an inconvenience and thus submitted to first century abortion methods? Is Paul using pregnancy, uh, which in the first century was just a harrowing experience? Is, is Paul using pregnancy as a word picture for the struggle of labor and endurance for Christ in a fallen world? Or is Paul speaking of Jesus? Um, another baby. Verse 15. But they will be delivered through the birth of a child. That's the literal translation. A child born in Bethlehem who grew in wisdom, godliness, peace, self-control, and holiness, and who suffered on the cross for us. Don't you see what this chapter is calling us to? God wants His people to gather in worship, praying to Him and learning from His Word so that His Spirit will shape their lives into the life of His Son, Timothy. Superman isn't going to fix this. But the God-man Jesus did. Jesus, whose cape was not red, it was scarlet. And he was not made of steel, but flesh and blood. And Roman spike did not bounce off his body. It pierced his hands and feet. He who could have commanded legions of angels to come in his defense came in peace, godliness, holiness, and self-control. He who spoke creation into existence by his word was born into this world and he learned obedience. Jesus, our ransom. What would, what would our church look like if we lived out 1 Timothy 
too. I know what it would look like. I mean, it would look like a congregation about whom the community says, these people care. They pray for all people. They're people of prayer. They, they pray for rulers and leaders and presidents and governors. And they pray for those in high positions of government. They pray for the military. They pray for the state police and local police. And they pray not simply so that those in authority will be better. They pray so that we, the church community, will be better at living dignified peaceful, godly lives so that the world will come to see how attractive that way of life is. A dignified community, a winsome and attractive community. We pray for all to show all that there's a better way in submission to the King who died for all. We pray when we gather and when we gather, we learn. We, we open our Bibles to learn. We open our hearts to love. Praying and learning. And you cannot pray and learn when you're angry. And you cannot pray and learn when you're quarreling. And you cannot pray and learn when you're distracted. And you cannot pray and learn when you're interrupting. And you cannot pray and learn when your temperament, your unresolved conflicts, and when cultural influences pressure you so that you can't even pay attention to Christ. You can't. But in a place of dignity and peace and holiness and modesty and self-control, oh my, people get curious about the God you worship when they see His life through your life. In the movie Gladiator, Maximus says to the emperor Marcus Aurelius, I've seen much of the world. It is brutal. It is dark. Rome is the light. Well, I wish he wouldn't have said that. I wish he would have said this. I've seen much of the world. It's brutal and it's dark. The church is the light. The church is the light. We, we are. Let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven, Jesus said. This place, we are. This place where learning and praying occur. This place is the place that Paul calls in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The apostle Paul did not say that the University of Illinois is the pillar and buttress of all truth. The Apostle Paul did not say that Parkin College is the pillar and the buttress of all truth. The Apostle Paul said that the church, and we are the church. Truth is to come from this place. Truth that is attractively adorned in grace and mercy. Truth grounded in the only God, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one mediator between God and people. As we pray to him, as we learn about Him, as we live for Him, to the glory of God and the good of others. Amen. Heavenly Father, we continue in all of our prayers and in all of our supplications and in all of our petitions and thanksgivings, appeals to You that You would take anger and quarreling and bitterness out. 
that you, Lord Jesus Christ, would remove our hardened hearts so that our hearts might be hearts of holiness. And Father, keep us learning. Keep our mindset open so that we will be nourished by your truth. Your word is our life. God, when you show up, the situation gets better. Help us live in such a way so that whatever room we walk into, the situation gets better. For your glory and the good of your people, God's people said, Amen.